You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In August of 1740, George Whitfield wrote an approximately 14-page letter to John Wesley in opposition to a recent sermon he had given on the doctrine of election. And here's how he opened the letter. Reverend and very dear brother, God only knows what unspeakable sorrow of heart I have felt on account since I left England last. Whether it be my infirmity or not, I frankly confess that Jonah could not go with more reluctance against Nineveh than I now take pen in hand to write against you. Was nature to speak, I had rather die than to do it. And yet if I am faithful to God and to my own and other souls, I must not stand neutral any longer. I am very apprehensive that our common adversaries will rejoice to see us differing among ourselves. But what can I say? The children of God are in danger of falling into error. Nay, numbers have been misled, whom God has been pleased to work upon my ministry. And a greater number are still calling aloud upon me to show also my opinion. I must then show that I know no man after the flesh, and that I have no respect to persons any further than is consistent with my duty to my Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Well, Michael, this was in the spirit of Galatians 2.11. You recall that passage when uh, we read the Apostle Paul say, But when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. And that's the spirit, really, that Whitfield takes up pen in opposition to very important doctrines that he differed with uh, with Wesley. Uh, what do we make of, of this exchange, uh, this tension? I guess it was more than tension, but uh, maybe you could help us put it in historical context. Yeah, I think it's a very important uh, debate. It, In some ways, it uh, has the flavor of um, uh, Luther and Erasmus in some ways. Um, with this difference that uh, Luther did not regard Erasmus as a fellow brother in Christ, uh, whereas Whitfield never doubted uh, Wesley's uh, standing in um, uh, the Christian faith. But it's it's a recurrent pattern, is it not, in the history of the church, is this whole debate about the relationship between uh, the sovereignty of God in human affairs, particularly salvation, and the the the, the will, the the the, the the bondage, the freedom of the will. To what degree is the will free to embrace Christ? Um, how does a person come to embrace Christ? Uh, does God override their will? Uh, does he change their will? These sort of questions are, are, are perennial. And so I think, um, <clears throat> I think the debate raises uh, the importance that uh, Whitfield, who was an evangelist, saw with regard to these questions um contemporary at least 20th century evangelicalism 
uh, I think to, to a large degree argued, th these are just doctrinal questions that are nitpicking, finicky. They really don't bear on the work of evangelism. We, we just need to be, get out there and start saving souls uh, <clears throat> rather than arguing about such matters. And the fact that you've got a man like Whitfield who is passionate about the salvation of souls, um, uh, God forbid he could say on one occasion that I would be 15 minutes with a person whom I don't know and not raise the issue of the salvation of their soul. Um, and yet he felt it incumbent upon him to um, raise an issue that he was probably very conscious would lead to a, a cleavage between him and uh, Wesley. So um, I think on that level, it shows us here's a man of whom one could not say, well, he wasn't passionate about evangelism, and yet he felt very deeply about the way in which uh, doctrine and evangelism uh, were yoked together, twinned together, uh, the importance of not separating the two, the way in which our doctrinal convictions shape our evangelism. Michael, that's helpful. And, and I love the way you brought up Luther and Erasmus, because you're right, very different tone in, in some ways. You take this letter that I read from, this is Whitfield's response, again, to a sermon from Romans 8, actually, that, that Wesley preached. And Whitfield can't believe, you might recall, he's like, you're actually going to use that text to try to disprove election. And he's actually going to use the very same text to show Wesley how he's wrong. But you're right. I think it's very clear in Bondage of the Will, uh, that book-length response that Luther gave to Erasmus. And again, I kind of made it sound like, oh, a 14-page letter. Well, when Luther felt like he got something wrong, he wrote about 350 pages and had it published as a book. Very different time, right? We, we argue over Twitter, and I think we look to settle things in about you know 220 characters. Uh, but these men were writing uh, much longer uh, treatises against one another. But you're right. I remember Luther saying to Erasmus, look, if, if we don't know our role and God's role in salvation, I can't rightly worship God. Meaning, Erasmus, you're not understanding your role in salvation, so you can't rightly worship God. I think it was a, a salvation issue, of course, for Luther in his response to Erasmus. But here, remarkably, Michael, and I wonder if you could speak to this. Uh, you're right. Whitfield has every expectation of seeing Wesley in glory. This isn't an issue that uh, he thinks is, you know, he's outside the faith. Whitfield's not saying that. And yet these are very serious issues. And for our audience, let's make it clear. We're talking about the doctrine of election, talking about perseverance of the saints. Um, the atonement, of course, is it universal? Is it limited in some capacity or definite? Uh, and yet, how is Whitfield, here's my question, and maybe we can help our listeners think through this. How is Whitfield able to come to that conclusion that this isn't a salvific issue, very important, but I'm going to treat him as a brother? Yeah, it's obviously in Whitfield's mind, this is not a primary issue of salvation. Yeah. It's not like uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ um, as divine, uh, the Trinity, uh, the resurrection of the body. Uh, justification by faith alone. <clears throat> but it is a secondary issue, and secondary issues are issues that divide mm. brothers. Um, and uh, this one did divide them. Uh, for about 10 years, they really kind of worked in separate spheres. 
and then at the end of the 1740s were reconciled. Um, the language that they used of one another was temperate. And I think it was tempered by the fact that they had worked together for a number of years. They had known each other for a number of years. Uh, Whitfield had a great uh, respect for Wesley. Uh, Wesley was his senior by nearly a dozen years. Uh, Wesley had been a bit of a mentor when he first went up to Oxford. Um, so he had a great respect for Wesley. And... Um, and I think that also shapes the way that 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 definitely shapes the way he speaks to Wesley, and uh, that's important. In other words, he's willing to engage in controversy, but how one how he engages in controversy is just as important as what he was willing to engage in controversy about. Well, how relevant is that to the evangelical church today? I mean, we could learn a lot, I think, from these exchanges two men that had very strong convictions. In other words, Wesley didn't back down. What was his response? Uh, I mean, for 10 years, it kept them apart because Wesley wasn't yielding. And of course, Whitfield wasn't yielding. So two men of great conviction, and yet uh, that the manner with which they engaged, uh, your example is great, wasn't Erasmus and Luther. And I, again, Erasmus wasn't quite as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He was different than Luther. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, people often. I mean, Luther's a great hero for us as Protestants. Uh, his yes. boldness and zeal for the gospel between seventeen, uh, fifteen, seventeen, and seventeen, fifteen, fifteen, seventeen, fifteen, twenty-one is admirable in so many ways. But Luther also wrestled with a number of other problems. Um, uh, his tendency to uh, vulgar speech and contempt of opponents uh, wasn't helpful, wasn't helpful in his controversy with a fellow evangelicals like Zwingli. And it probably wasn't helpful with Erasmus. You know, um, he, at one point he told Erasmus, he said, you know, everything's a laughing matter to you. And the reality is this, you're a wormy nut. And if I crack you open, all I'll find is crap. Well, oh, that is probably not the best way to win friends. And uh, no, the, the danger today is people look at Luther and think, okay, yeah, we want to be like Luther, you know, bold, bold for Jesus. <laughs> and uh, they, they fail to recognize that there were times in which B Luther's boldness went beyond the bounds of propriety. And he, he, he was, a, he was an embarrassment to his fellow evangelicals, Melanchthon, when Calvin, Calvin had come up with this via media regarding the Lord's Supper in terms of the presence of Christ, and Luther had had a famous break with Zwingli over at Marburg, and uh, Calvin wrote to Melanchthon about this, and Melanchthon basically, um, and Calvin complained about Luther's vulgarity, and Melanchthon eventually told him, I, I don't think I'm going to show Luther your suggestion. Because he knew, he, knew, he knew the way Luther was going to respond to it. And it, 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 Luther is a great hero. But, um, <clears throat> like all of us, he has clay feet. And that needs to be recognized. And uh, the Luther, Luther at, at Warms in 1521 is, is to be admired and imitated, but not the Luther at Marburg 
when he mm-hmm. told Zwingli, you and I, you, my spirit does not recognize the spirit in you. Mm-hmm. And Zwingli, Zwingli was, was deeply hurt by that, that this man whom he respected from a distance would basically tell him, you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, very, very different, different in, 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 in this, this letter, letter that, that Whitfield, Whitfield wrote. Yeah. To Wesley, let me let me end maybe this discussion, and I know we have other things we want to move on to with respect to Whitfield, but the tone at the end. So here we are toward the end of this 14-page letter, and Whitfield is vigorous throughout. I mean, arguing uh, for the doctrine of election, for the perseverance of the saints, for definite atonement. Uh, when he had read his, his uh, fellow Oxford divine uh, who was course, much older than him, John Owen, the death of death and the death of Christ, I'm sure marked, marked Whitfield a lot. But here's how he ends the letter to Wesley. And, and to your point, Michael, we can pick up on this charitable tone. He says, God knows my heart. As I told you before, so I declare again, nothing but a single regard to the honor of Christ has forced this letter from me. I love and honor you for his sake. And when I come to judgment, will thank you before men and angels for what you have under God done for my soul. There, I am persuaded. I shall see dear Mr. Wesley, convinced of election and everlasting love. And it often fills me with pleasure to think how I shall behold you casting your crown down at the feet of the Lamb. And as it were filled with a holy blushing for opposing the divine sovereignty, in the manner you have done. But I hope the Lord will show you this before you go hence. Oh, how do I long for that day? If the Lord should be pleased to make use of this letter for that purpose, it would abundantly rejoice the heart of, dear and honored sir, your affectionate, though unworthy, brother and servant in Christ, George Whitfield. An appropriate wow. way to end. Yeah, that's 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 tremendous. And that's not the first of that tone we hear. I mean, it's it's sprinkled throughout the letter, and yet what a what a an affectionate uh, conclusion to a forceful plea. I mean, yeah. he didn't walk back anything he said. Nope, no, nope, that's lovely. Well, Michael, you know, um, and I think we had mentioned this in the last episode that we did want to get to uh, a little bit more of Whitfield's life, and in particular, uh, his uh, view of slavery. And he's in a similar camp with Jonathan Edwards, another uh, giant in uh, this evangelical awakening. And they shared a similar perspective on slavery. And the reason we're bringing this up is not only because it's important to understanding uh, the men and their ministry, but also in our particular cultural moment, uh, a lot of people are canceling, as it were, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, saying they are not redeemable as uh, mentors or heroes in the faith uh, because of their position when it came to slavery. Maybe you could explain for our listeners what was their position on slavery. We could focus on Whitfield. How how did slavery work itself out in Whitfield's ministry? Yeah, this is um, uh, an issue of, I think, uh, significance today for a number of reasons. Um, because of the climate political, racial climate, uh, and because of the way in which Whitfield uh, engaged in 
the slave trade and slavery, um, which we'll uh, specify in a second. Um, it's really an area that you can't overlook. I think in generations past, um, it has been overlooked. And um, I think it needs to be stressed that from from right from the get-go that Whitfield regarded all human beings on one level as the same before a holy God, their need for salvation, that there were many who heard Whitfield who are African-Americans who remembered him with deep fondness because they heard the gospel from his lips. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley, the greatest African-American poetess of the 18th century, um, certainly remembered him that way. She penned an elegy for him. She heard him in Boston and came to faith in Christ, uh, probably through his ministry. But having said that, uh, Whitfield um, had purchased a portion of land in Georgia near Savannah from some Moravians um, who had decided to work mostly in uh, the middle states, Pennsylvania. And so he bought some land that he wanted to use for an orphanage and realized he needed people to tend the grounds. And even though Georgia was a slave-free state, uh, well, it wasn't a state at that point, it was a colony. Um, even though it was that James Oglethorpe, the first governor, wanted to make sure that it was going to be, slavery was not going to be an issue there. Um, Whitfield promoted the use of slaves in uh, his orphanage and actually brought them into Georgia. Um, and so that's that's a, that's a problem. That's a real problem on the 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 way in which uh, Whitfield um, reacted to really what is the the et the key ethical issue of the 18th century for evangelicals in the English speaking world was the issue of slavery. And um, his uh, theological opponent, who we've just been talking about, Wesley, had a much better perspective. Um, he came to the realize by the 1770s that slavery was an abomination before a holy God. And he did all he could to fight it. But that realization in Wesley uh, only came after the death of Whitfield. And so one might say, one might hope that if Whitfield had lived longer, um, he would have um, come to different convictions. Uh, we don't know. Um, we hope that would be so. But he certainly laid the, what he did do, though, was he laid the seeds for evangelicals in the South, uh, Southern Methodists and Southern Baptists and Southern Presbyterians, to, th to really think that they could operate in two different spheres, that they could engage in the unethical uh, praxis, practice of slavery in the slave trade, and yet be upstanding members of a local church, and that their spirituality before a holy God and in company with other Christians was a different, was different from how they acted in society. And um, uh, so I, uh, and I, 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 some will say, well, you know, this is to judge Whitfield by later standards. And no, it's not. I'm very much against anachronism in doing history because um, it, to me, anachronisms basically stem from hubris and arrogance 
we're we're on a mountaintop as it were looking back and if only those poor fools in the valley had been able to see what we can see from the heights they would know they were wrong but uh there were those in whitfield's day like um um the um the quakers who were uh adamant against the slave trade um wesley himself learned much from the quakers uh, there were baptist leaders like robert robinson and william button and abraham booth who were adamant against the slave trade um many of the disciples of George jonathan edwards edwards himself uh, also was uh, owned slaves but many of his disciples including his son jonathan edwards jr were adamant against the slave trade and slavery and so it's not anachronistic there were those in in that day of the long 18th century who were well aware that this is this is really wrong deeply wrong and michael i think it is appealing and this is talked about a lot today it's very appealing to think that say a, a jonathan edwards or george whitfield had they lived longer or over time they would have come to see for example as wesley did and and others booth you mentioned and because there were there were um opponents of slavery uh, in their times. We can't say that everyone was blind to the injustice of it. It's just not true. Uh, on the other hand, I, I mean, that I would like to think that. That would be a wonderful thing to, and we don't know ultimately, so that, that is a viable option to think of had they lived longer. Uh, on the other hand, is it possible, and so I want to make the problem harder in terms of how we embrace uh, the Whitfields and the Edwards, could it be that they just thought the Bible tacitly accepted slavery and they never would have changed their mind? They just, that was their position. And if so, like, what do we do with that? I mean, if they just thought the Bible doesn't condemn it. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that, that that's a very distinct possibility that we would have to grapple with. So we're dealing with yeah. what ifs here in some ways, but we're not dealing with what ifs in another way because there were those who argued on the strength of the Bible, that slavery, that the slavery wrong, yeah. they were uh, supporting and engaged in, uh, was um, was uh, tolerated by the Bible. It had its uh, imprimatur. The Bible gave its imprimatur to these this sort of thing in the 18th century. Um, yeah. Again, there's a, a you know there's a problem there because the slavery of the ancient world is not at all comparable in some ways to the type of slavery that was going on in America or the Caribbean or the New World um, because the latter was racist. Um, it was only African-Americans and uh, native mm -hmm. peoples of those various parts of the New World that were enslaved, whereas the Romans enslaved anybody. Right. So, they were equal opportunity enslavers. Yeah. I mean, they conquered you, they enslaved you. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the Roman world was very upwardly mobile, and so people could start their lives as slaves. Not tons like this, but people could start their lives as slaves and end up a Roman governor, mm. uh, one of the wealthiest. There's a store, a, a, a play, uh, it's a novel about a, um, a man who starts off his life as a slave in a Roman context and ends up a multi-billionaire in Rome and would throw these lavish parties to which uh, he would invite all of the wealthy aristocracy of the, the of Rome, uh, who couldn't stand the man because of his origins. They they felt it was uh, 
the, 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 the con consorting with a man who had once been a slave was beneath their dignity. But because he was so wealthy and everybody, anybody who was anybody who was there was going to be there, they all ended up going to his parties. And it was a satire, uh, basically, on the Roman aristocracy. Uh, well, that never happened in America or the Caribbean. I mean, that sort of world was virtually impossible. So there are there are significant differences in the type of slavery, but one can imagine the possibility, yeah, that that um, uh, Whitfield or Edwards could have continued to believe that slavery and uh, now in, in Edwards's case, Edwards believed the slave trade was wrong mm -hmm. uh, because he knew he, he knew First Timothy one condemned the kidnappers of men. Um, Whitfield does not seem to have had any problems with the slave trade or slavery. Yeah, uh, he doesn't, as far as I know, he doesn't weigh in no. on the question, at least in my research, on whether it's biblically lawful uh, or biblical to for a Christian to purchase or, you know, to, as if people were property. He just doesn't, I can't find anything where he weighs in on that. So I don't know if you No, have, I, I don't. I, uh, I mean, he does urge masters to treat their slaves well. Yes, that that's true. He's not, he's not questioning or undermining the institution. Yeah. Uh, so if if we do if 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 the what ifs ended up in that direction, that Whitfield was not going to change, wouldn't change his mind. We nonetheless still have people like, um, you know, Basil Manley Senior, who was the chairman of the board of Southern Seminary, uh, who was a slave owner. And um, there was a famous case of a man that he whipped uh, at the University of Alabama, was it? Was he the, hmm. I think he was the president of the University of Alabama. Okay, I'm uh, not sure. Tuscaloosa is, I'm showing my ignorance of Southern geography here. Um, you are right. That is where I'm going to go out on a limb and our, our listeners will let us know if we're wrong. But yes, I, the University of Alabama is in Tuscaloosa. Okay, so it's the University of Alabama. Yeah, yeah. He was he was a president and he had one of his slaves whipped publicly. And okay. around 2000 the university uh, issued a public apology for that and uh, I'm not sure if there were any sort of restitution was done, but um, so what what does one do with a man like that? Um, he died in 1868 if I recall correctly. So after the Civil War. <clears throat> Um, was he a Christian? And I think we have to recognize that sometimes Christians can engage in horrific acts. And um, it shows the depth of our fallenness. Uh, because by, by, the, by the middle of the 19th century, there was a very strong abolitionist movement, as you know, mm -hmm. in America. And the arguments against the slave trade and slavery were very evident. Um, and yet in the face of that, it took a war to end slavery in America. And there were many in the South who believed that they could hold their Christian faith together with, with slavery. Michael, let me test a, a kind of theory on you here too. And I know we're, we're coming up on the end of our time together, but I, I've thought, could, is it, it, would it be appropriate or right to think about the slavery issue um, in the same way we sometimes, not sometimes, we think about the history of doctrine and the development of doctrine. 
So in other words, we, we didn't settle as the church our Christology until around 325, right? I mean, we, we, we can look at the great ecumenical creeds, but there were centuries of debate and polemics and everything that went into finally codifying these ecumenical orthodox doctrines, getting them right. Uh, is there a way to sympathetically uh, look at the development of the slavery issue? And, and uh, I, I, I think it would be fair to say we're at an evangelical consensus without question right now. I don't know anyone of any um, repute that is defending slavery today. But you had rattled off a couple historical events, whether it was um, the work of, of Newton and then Wilberforce, and then in our country here in America, it took a civil war. But I think we're at a point, is that one way to look at it? It doesn't make anything right. It just says, in a fallen world, in the providence of God, some very significant things, whether it be Christology or even the canon, we could talk about, you know, the canon. Um, here we've, through a lot of blood, sweat, and toil, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've come to a consensus on the slavery issue. I don't know. Is that one way to look at it? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's an intriguing suggestion. Um, <laughs> Another program, perhaps. I think it's another program, maybe. Um, I I think I'd need some time to think about that because I'm, yeah. I'm, I mean, it's very clear with things like, as you said, Trinitarian theology, <clears throat> the canon, um, the doctrine of atonement. Um, but eighteen hundred years of reflection. Um, yeah, I'm. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm. I, 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 I think I, I, I really need and, to think about that. Well, and the reason I bring it up is just to say, to answer that question that I get from students all the time, I've asked it myself over the years, how could we have missed this, right? So I just think it's, it's more of a meta question of, of in, the, in the providence of God, some of these things for clarity and consensus take time because I've often, and I feel this from students all the time. They're wondering, what do I do with Edwards? What do I do with Whitfield? How could they have missed it? And I said, well, I don't have a nice elevator pitch for them. I don't have a quick answer. <laughs> it's, well, it's I, think, complex. I think with Edwards, <laughs> Edwards is complex because you, yeah. you do have his, his uh, he, he had probably five or six slaves in his, his household during his life, but he has a very high regard for Native Americans. Uh, has his son go and live with um, a Mohican tribe uh, during the early days of the French and Indian War, when it would have been very, very dangerous because he wanted his son to learn the language and culture so he could be a missionary. Um, when uh, Edwards ends up in um, his last charge in, in the 1750s, um, most of his congregation are, are Native, Native Americans. Um, all of his disciples, I said many, but I think all of his disciples, guys like Samuel Hopkins and Joseph Bellamy, I mean, these men are the ardent, they are ardently opposed to slave trade. Mm -hmm. during, the, mm -hmm. during the Revolutionary War, Hopkins in 1775 issues two or three tracts that are absolutely blistering against slavery. And in one of them, it was amazing. I, I, I had never read it in as close a manner as I did recently, 
But in one of them, he actually takes to task his, his, his mentor. He takes Edwards to task. He doesn't mention him, but he takes the task. People who say, yes, we, we think the slavery, slave trade is wrong, but slavery is acceptable. And he hammers them. So uh, Whitfield's a bit different than that. Um, but I, uh, what I am opposed to is, okay, these guys made, trem- I think, significant error in this area. Mm-hmm. Therefore, too. we could discard them. <clears throat> well, if you start doing that, you know, Calvin has to go because of his prosecution, his involvement in the prosecution of Cervantes and undermining religious liberty. Um, Oliver Cromwell's got to go because of what he did to the Irish. And Luther. Luther. I mean, how many? Go we got a lot of loose. And the way <laughs> take his, your pick. His Jewish tracks were used by the Nazis. I mean, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on and on. And um, I think what, what church history does teach us is uh, we are a catalog of sinners. Yes. But also sinners through whom God works. And uh, I think I think we're at the, when these sorts of things become controversial, like the ethical practice of slavery, etc., um, like or rather the ethical the ethical stand of people vis-a-vis slavery, um, uh, the danger is of um, self righteousness. Oh, we would never have done that. Uh, we would have stood against it. Um, it's easy to say that in our context, it's, you, you just don't know. And I, I think, I think these things behoove us to develop an attitude of humility and recognizing that, but for the grace of God, that's what we would have done. Beads podcast is in partnership with h and Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.